Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. As we were rolling off of 2017 and looking forward to 2018, um, for a lot of people in individual conversations and just a, a general sense of hearing comments and stuff, we felt like there were a number of us who were really yearning for some renewal. Like we, we didn't want to trudge along in the same kind of numbness that so often marks veteran Christian life. You know, the first couple years of being new at anything is exciting. Everything is new. But after years and years, it's typical for people to start growing cold. And I, I think there was a general sense among many in our church that we're ready for renewal, for new life to spark up in our hearts, especially if you've been walking with Jesus a long time. And when we saw more than 60 of you sign up as a commitment to read the Word of God, we felt like it wasn't just our imagination. There really is a groundswell of desire to have more of Christ in our lives, for Christ to have more of us in his life. And so we kicked off the year with a sermon series called Launch. It's one of the shortest sermon series I'll ever preach. It's three messages. But they are three important spiritual principles that will inform us or guide us as we set off on a new year. We built that, um, that little series around this visual image of a rocket taking off into orbit because I think it's a great picture. Uh, it, it's a helpful image to keep in mind to symbolize what it is we're yearning for in our hearts. And the truth is, it is not trivial for a rocket to break the bonds, the pull of gravity, and get into space. It takes a lot. And we want to acknowledge that uh, it's not going to be easy to experience the kind of renewal we're hungering for. It's going to take real power. It's going to take divine intervention. But it is what we want. And so the first message, we learned that uh, just like a rocket needs mission control, we need guidance along the way. It's very easy to have zeal early on and misfire as we continue the journey. And so we want to make sure, and the the real um, take-home message of that first message was this. Life and this broken world are always pulling down on us. See, this world we live in doesn't want us to rise to Christ to experience newness of life. It's always pulling down. But we spend too much of our energy fighting against that downward pull. The most important spiritual work we do is to cling on to God who is always trying to pull us up. And do you see the difference there? How important it is as we're trying to launch that rather than fighting the downward pull that's always dragging, we cling, we focus on hanging on to God who is always lifting us up. Amen? You with me? Okay, so that was the first one. That was called Led by the Spirit. The second one, last Sunday, was Fueled by the Word. I was sharing how the space shuttle is about four and a half million pounds fully loaded. That's a lot of pounds to lift off the earth. And it takes an incredible amount of high-powered jet fuel or rocket fuel to get that thing off the ground. And if we really want to experience renewal we are not going to get there through typical human means of fueling. Regular food, regular friendship, regular diversion, those things won't lift our hearts the way we want. There's only one fuel strong enough, powerful enough, to provide the lift we need, and that is God's Word. And God's Word comes in the form of Scripture as a book, but it also comes, more importantly, in the form of a person, Jesus Christ, the living Word. And in fact, those two are related in that the book always points us to the person. That as we get into Scripture, it isn't just a book with words we're reading, but it is pointing us, it is inviting the real presence of Jesus Christ. The same way that we're present here with each other, Jesus is present with us. And that fuels us. We cannot make it forward in the spiritual life if it's just ideas and principles. It always comes down to the person of Jesus inhabiting, warming, filling us, that's what provides the lift that we need for real, lasting spiritual renewal. This morning, we're going to look at the third thing, and that is that we are warmed 
by the community. And the idea there is that spiritual renewal happens best when we're not pursuing it alone. That's true of almost anything in life. If we really want to get far and keep going, we are created as human beings to need other people. It is one of the most profound and fundamental needs that we have. And if you've ever had a long season of feeling really alone, you know exactly what I'm describing. We are not made for solitary existence. It's painful even. It actually robs people of life. It takes years off of our lives to be completely alone. That is one of the heaviest burdens to carry. And so when we want to experience renewal and lift, it is so important we don't attempt to go there on our own. It is the reason God gave us the church. I delight in inducting new members because it's a reminder that we really are committed to one another and to Jesus together. That this really is a family. And we don't always live out that family perfectly, but it will never stop being the gold standard for which we aim. It informs how we want to do all of this. And we're going to look at a passage that's pretty familiar to a lot of us. It's the passage that so many church leaders today throw out there as hearkening back to the golden days of the church, the early beginnings or the honeymoon stage of this new Christian movement. Look at what it says in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. We'll read it together here. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. One of the first things I want to point out to you is the importance of devotion. The importance of devotion. Look at what it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. In studying for the sermon, one of the best definitions of devoted that I came across, I found in a commentary, and here's what it says. Devotion is a steadfast and single-minded fidelity to a certain course of action. Let me say that again. Devotion is a steadfast and single-minded fidelity or faithfulness to a certain course of action. So I want you to pause and think about this. Is there something in your life right now that you are pursuing that way? Is there something in your life right now to which you are completely devoted? And if there isn't something like that right now, has there ever been for you something that you recall that felt that way? That with single-minded devotion, this was what you breathed, you ate, you thought about, you dreamt about. This was your obsession, if you will. And it produced a scale of priority for you. So that in pursuit of this thing, you would sacrifice many other things for this good. I've always marveled at people who are able to not watch any television because they want to fill their life with something better. I hear things like that. I go, I want to be that guy. And I've tried for years, and it appears I just like TV a little too much to be completely rid of it. But when I see why they've given up TV, it's not because TV has no value or merit. It's because they are in hot pursuit of something else. And it's just something they have to clear aside to make space in their life for it. That's what devotion looks like, I think. What does it look like in your life when you are utterly devoted to something. Maybe it's the building of a business. Maybe it's the preparation of children for life ahead. Maybe it's getting ready to find the perfect mate to share your life. Maybe it's trying to get hired by that one perfect company you've always dreamt of working for. Or maybe 
if we're really being honest, it's also the pursuit of Jesus and a life with him. What does devotion look like in your life? I toyed with the idea of having you guys talk about that with each other, but then my, my compassion for the introverts kicked in. So just pretend you talked about it with each other. But I, I'd be, I would love to hear each person in this room talk about what devotion, what it looks like when I myself am devoted to a thing. See, today a lot is made of the role of leaders in the church. And it's amazing how many books come out every year admonishing and instructing and training leaders in the church to make the church better. But it strikes me in this text we just read how little leaders are mentioned. In fact, the leaders are mentioned a little. It says they taught and the disciples listened and and devoted themselves to that teaching. And it also says they performed miracles, signs and wonders. But beyond that, the beauty and the health and the aliveness, if you will, of this early church was more a measure of the devotion of the members than the excellence of the leaders. I don't mean to pit one against the other. Leadership matters. Leaders are very important, and God has given leaders as a gift to the church. But in the end, a church is not made by leaders alone. It can't be. In the end, the church looks and feels how it does as a measure of the devotedness of its members. And I don't say that as a roundabout rebuke or anything like that. I'm saying, take, take this to heart, that you have so much of a role in what this church feels like. When a person visits and says, wow, that was such a welcoming church, or wow, that was a really cold reception I got. When they said the people here brought me into their hearts. When they said the people here really love Jesus. They make me want to know God more. They make God feel more real to me. All those things are not just an expression or a reflection of the quality of leadership here, although that quality is world-class. Amen? That's a good place. Amen all by myself, I guess. All right. So, um, yeah, high-five me. But even if the leaders are amazing, it is the people who form the heart of the church It's what makes God visible and feel real. And it's it's what makes people feel alive. And I know this to be true because when people often leave the church and I ask them, tell me about some of what we can learn as you leave. Now, not everyone who leaves the church leaves for this reason, but very few people will say, because you ticked me off, pastor. Sometimes they do. And I own that. Okay. And so do the other pastors. But often it's, I just never quite made a connection here. It's not so much that what happens on the, on the platform on Sundays was falling short, but they never really connected at a deep level with the other people. So the, what they're saying is there was a lot I liked about the church, but the reason it never got its hooks deep in my heart is because I moved through here fairly disconnected. And part of that was I couldn't really find the friend that entered the depth of my heart. It really made me feel like you are my brother and you are my sister. And some of you are feeling that right now this morning. You don't have to shake your hand or shake your head or raise your hand, but you, you know, that, that may be what you're wrestling with. And so I want to remind you that the heart and the character of the church is in so many ways a reflection of the devotedness of the members to Jesus Christ and to his body. Now, the they who are devoted Who are these people? Well, in the the early part of Acts 2, Peter had delivered an amazing sermon. Peter, who in the early days of his ministry and walk with Jesus, opened his mouth only to change feet. You know that expression? He's always putting his foot in his mouth. I love that phrase. I I think it's so clever. You know, I didn't make it up. (laughs) But Peter usually said only stupid things. And all of a sudden, he sees the resurrected Christ. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he begins preaching a message that makes everyone go, is that Peter? And it says that when he's finished preaching, in verse 37, it says, the people were cut to the heart. Every preacher's dream is that one day they would speak for God and the Holy Spirit would move and people would say, I'm cut to the heart. Ow! Like, that's so, it touched me in such a deep way. That's what we preach for, is to see God move. So that it's not just touching the mind, but it's touching the depths of the heart. And it says, at that day, on that day, 
around 3,000 people were so moved by the truth of God's word proclaimed that they turned their lives over to Jesus and were baptized and became added to the family of believers. Now, this is growth numerically at a scale that's hard to imagine. About 120 people hanging out in Jerusalem, just still reeling and processing the death and resurrection of Jesus. Peter preaches a sermon, and 3,000 people, I mean, we're about, what, 150, 160 people. Can you imagine next week, 3,000 new converts flood this place? We've got an overflow room. We have to shoot the, the sermon by TV into the auditorium. It would just completely change everything. There will be some logistical challenges if we all try to pull in one place. But here's the thing that also happened. The zeal of these new believers who were in a fresh way encountering Jesus and what he'd done for them. That was infectious, and it began to touch everyone in the church so that altogether the temperature rose in this church. And their devotion raised the bar of devotion for everyone so that together there was this concerted movement. They were caught up in the same current, and everyone together wanted to see Jesus rise in their midst and have more and more of their hearts turned over to him. There's so much in this passage I want to talk about, but I want to focus on two things that they focused on in this church, they were devoted to, that make such a difference in the way community feels at a church. And the first is that they were devoted to sharing. They were devoted to sharing. Look what it says. All the believers were together and had everything in common, and they sold their property and possessions to give anyone who had need. In America, the right of ownership and possession is one of the most deeply held values there is. Even when you are just driving on a lane, that 20 feet of space all around you is yours. It's not public space you're driving, and it's your space. And people will let you know if they feel you violated what they own. It's just the nature of life in America is what's mine is mine. Get off. You don't have the right to things that belong to me. And part of that is we work really hard to get what's ours. So sharing is a profoundly difficult thing to do in a culture like ours where what is mine is so pronounced, where rights of ownership are almost sacred to us. So when we're willing to share in a culture like ours, it's really a big measure of how important that person is to us. So when we're willing to share, and not just share like, here's half my stick of gum, don't say I never did anything for you. You know, okay, that, that's sharing, I suppose. But I'm talking about like real significant sharing, like, wow, you'd do that for me? Why would anyone do that for someone else? When we share at that level with someone, what we're communicating to the person is, this, you're in the inner circle now, man. You mean a lot to me. I will bear your burdens with you. I think sharing happens everywhere. It's, it happens in every church. I've seen countless examples of sharing take place right before my eyes at Harvest. And so please understand, I'm not suggesting that people don't share at our church. Our church shares. I see it all the time. But I think the way sharing most commonly works here and in most places is that we prioritize sharing with those people we feel close to. Right? I mean... I have my concentric circles, the the onion layers of people that, yeah, no-brainer. If you need something, I don't care how much it hurts me. I have to help you. Family is kind of like that. Kind of resent the fact that that's the case. But, you know, family needs something like, oh, why do I have to be related to a dummy? Every day there's a new crisis for you, and I'm your blood relative. So, I mean, sometimes you feel that, like, ugh. But family, you, don't, you, you may groan, but you don't actually think, I'm not gonna. It's just what we do. There are some people we will help no matter what. And there's an, an increasingly out, outward ring of people. And at some point we say, all right, well, you know, I feel bad for you. I'll pray for you. But all I can say, it sucks to be you because I can't help everybody, right? It's your issue. And I feel bad. I will pray for you, but I can't help you. And that's the way I think Normally, sharing works. What's remarkable about the account of this church was how inclusive and how expansive the culture of sharing was. You really can't miss the language here, can you? 
It says all the believers. In other words, this was one of those weird things where there weren't people left out. Everybody was sold out for this. Everybody bought into it. There wasn't a person who said, yeah, not my stuff. I really love and appreciate, admire the... This is how you know when people are not going to participate. They talk about your church. They say, I love how your church, you people share. Aren't you sitting right next to me? You're, you're here. Why do you call my church? Because I, I hear what they're saying. I don't think I want to fully be in yet, but I really admire what I'm seeing. Your church. In this case, they said, this is our church. And not one person exempted themselves. If this is us, all of us are in. And then here's, nothing was exempted. Nothing was, well, here's the stuff I'm willing to share, and here's my stuff. This is the house my family lives in. There's got to be boundaries somewhere. This is our land. It's been in my family for 30 generations. I'm not going to give this up because somebody had a crisis. I can't. I have a moral obligation to preserve the family land. But what it says is they sold the property and their possessions. Everything was fair game. It was included. And then it says, even more remarkably, that anyone who had need among them, anyone. And here's what's included, which is, I think, really tough for me, is a lot of people who had needs, their pain was self-inflicted. It wasn't like a hurricane hit their house. It was that they made a bad investment, and they're destitute. They, they had a, a relationship breakdown, and they're out on their own. They made some poor choices, and they're worse off today than they were yesterday. Not everybody. Some people are truly innocent victims. But what's really hard about that word, anyone, is it includes people whose pain and need were brought on by their own choices. And yet it says, without discrimination, without prejudice, anyone in our community who had a need could receive the help because we all were in it together and everything we called ours was truly ours now. I'm so familiar with this passage, I'm going to just gloss over it, but that rocks me. Doesn't it rock? It's not a normal kind of sharing culture in any organization. I wonder, if have you ever experienced sharing at that level in a group of people? I have in small groups of dedicated friends who really loved each other, but I have not really experienced that in a widespread fashion at the level of a whole organization. And yet that is actually possible. That's what we're being encouraged to see by this text, is that seems like science fiction, like not normal behavior. But if Jesus moves the hearts of a group of people profoundly, that level of sharing is in fact possible. It's possible to walk into a place carrying a burden so huge, you don't feel comfortable even telling people about it. Why would they feel like it's their problem. This is my problem to bear, and I'm embarrassed even to ask for help. Or maybe it's that you walk in and say, I don't know anyone here. I need help, but who do I burden with this? I don't feel I have the right to ask anyone here for help. And imagine in that case how lonely it feels to have a huge need bigger than anything in your resources, and there's no one to share it with. It's your burden but no one else sees it. And what happened in this church was when people entered the family, no matter how new they were or how broken they were, if they had a need, the whole family would rally to them and say, your need is our burden. No one here goes it alone. Even if this is your first day, you are with us now, and we take care of each other. Something about that just pulls at your heart, doesn't it? To me, that's so beautiful. I would love to be a part of something like that. And I think we're at least halfway there, Harvest. I really think that there is a spirit of generosity and willingness to share. And I'm not saying there's nothing, now let's get some. I'm saying there's some, maybe even a lot. But I would love to see Jesus lead us to break through that last barrier. To say, what if instead of a lot and some and most, we could say all of us, with everything for anyone. All of us, with everything for anyone. Can you imagine what it would feel like to be a part of a family like that and have needs and burdens? Wouldn't that make God's love feel a lot more real to you? Because we've all been there where we've had a need that we cannot meet, 
and we're sitting alone in the midst of that need and all the happiness around us, instead of lifting us up, it's just like another weight pressed on our heads. It's hard for me to see all these happy, well-resourced, okay people and I am dying every day in my burden. And what's harder is that all these happy people see me and smile and no one knows and no one is sharing it with me. Imagine how different your attitude towards God would be. Because here's what, why this matters. God loves us, right? Can we say amen to that? Simple, I mean, this is Sunday school. God actually loves you and me a lot. The real question, though, for a lot of people, the what we're struggling with, yeah, I hear that, but what does that mean? In the real world of flesh and blood, what does it feel like to be loved by God? Or another way, put another way, how does God show his love to human beings in a way that is not just abstract and internal and of the heart and soul? How does God make a human being feel loved in the same tangible ways that we make others feel loved? And the answer is simply this. There are times when God will do extraordinary, direct, personal things in our life. They're not every day all the time, but God does do those things. But primarily the way God has always chosen to show his love to his people is through his people. That's amazing to me. But that's how it's always worked. From the very beginning, that God shows his love to us primarily by moving the hearts of other people to be his hands and feet to us. So that, and here's how how we attach that love, human love, to God is people, when they're moved by the heart of Jesus, love other people in ways you cannot really explain from the human heart alone. There is a level of helping and sharing that normal people just do And then there's a level you just go, I don't understand why anyone would do this for another person. I've received that kind of help from people. And sometimes I just sit there and go, wow, I don't know if I could have done that in their shoes. It's so generous. It is so selfless. And I think that's the word we're after. I could say, let's not be selfish, but that feels like the wrong way to say it. That feels like forming a command around an accusation. Don't be selfish. I think... The better way to say it is, let's aspire to be selfless. Because one of the marks of truly knowing Jesus and understanding what he's done for us is that we start to approach life less with the attitude of what we're owed and more from the attitude of what we've been given. See, we don't approach relationships saying, what are you going to give me today? Because I have needs. We say, how can I serve you today? Because I've been given everything. That doesn't mean my real needs don't count, but if we enter community touched by the heart of Jesus so that we understand in him I have already received everything. I have so much. I cannot approach life feeling like the world owes me something. I'm just completely bowled over by how much I've already received. And if we take that to heart, it has a visible change in the way that we interact with other people. The way we share is brought to another place because we already understand that more has been given than will ever be asked of us. What drives you more? Be honest. I mean, just reflect on it. What drives you more each day? Is it what you've been given already or what you feel you're still owed by life? by God, by other people. Are you willing to be God's tangible expression of love to someone else? Even someone you don't know very well, someone who God brought to this family, not just to hear sermons and grow, but because their need is meant to strengthen our community. That by rallying to someone we just met and saying, you've come to a place where we take care of each other. I don't know you, but your need is no longer just yours. I want to be there with you. Can you imagine how that would affect the sense of community here? To know that as I do this for you, I am fully confident that when it's my turn to be in need of any kind, you will also be there for me. Just imagine 
the profound effect it would have on us. Let me give you a second thing that they were devoted to. They were devoted to sharing, but they were also devoted to life together. And in fact, that word in the Greek is koinonia. Many of us have heard that word before. But in this case, it has the definite article, the, in front of it. In other words, it wasn't just life together. It was the life together. They were devoted to the life together. And this suggests there was something distinctive, a certain way that Christians lived together that they were devoted to. It wasn't just hanging out. There was a distinctively Christ-centered way in which those who were saved built community together. And that's important. That we're not just saying let's be together more, but let's be together more under the banner and love of Jesus Christ. And isn't that something we've all felt from time to time when we're sitting in a community group meeting and the entire dinner conversation is about the iPhone 10 and how um, face recognition is stupid. And at the end of that 45-minute animated conversation, even though it's been interesting, you walk away going, I could have done that anywhere with anyone. I could have done that with the stranger I see every day on the train going to work. But I sat at a table with my brothers and sisters in Christ And I didn't really feel like Jesus sat at the table with us. So we want to make sure that what we're talking about is the life together, that distinctive way of doing life together that marks the people who have been saved by Jesus Christ. you got to understand, these people in the early church, they were together a lot. A lot. Like every day a lot. Most of our CGs have moved to every other week. And the truth is, in the modern world, every day a lot would be unrealistic. I don't think, it would break us to try imitating that because our life and our economy and our society just isn't built quite the same way. But we'll touch on that a little bit more. They met in the temple every day. In fact, they met probably right around there. That little corner right there. This is a, a part of the temple called Solomon's Colonnade. And there's a little plaza outside of that area. And this little group of people would always hang out in that place every day. There wasn't necessarily a definite meeting time. It was just, we're always here. We're talking. We're teaching the word of God. And then we're talking about it with each other. It's basically a constant small group. And they were discipling each other in this way, just this very informal, let's worship together, let's hear about God's word, and let's talk it out so that it becomes a part of the way we look at life and the world around us. And then when they started getting hungry and someone said, hey, dude, I love your teaching, but I'm starving. When it was time to eat, they did it together. They would say, hey, everyone come over to my house. I got some leftover tacos from last week. Let's, let's just kill it. Let's just finish them off. Let's eat together. So they would go from the temple together to their homes, and they would sit in one another's private space, in each other's castles, and they would break bread together over the table. And I know that this is not a formal meal. Some commentators have speculated they went from the temple to people's homes to have holy communion with white gloves and silver trays. Nonsense. It says that they ate together enjoying the favor of all the people, and listen, they did it with glad and sincere hearts. It wasn't the kind of fellowship that was stiff and cold and formal, but it was the table fellowship of brothers and sisters. Or maybe if you don't get along with your brother and sister, it was the table fellowship of real friends. Do you get what I'm saying? This was warm-hearted, informal, you and me, we care about each other. I think it's one of the measures that has been universal through all of humanity, that we grow close to the people we eat with. From caveman days on, I don't know if you believe in caveman, but when Grog gave Og a piece of Tyrannosaurus thigh bone or something, even then it was like, you're one of mine. You share my hearth. You share my meat. We're together. When you sit at a table with someone, Something opens up between us. Isn't that the case? And one of the reasons they enjoyed such a deep sense of community is that they were around each other all the time. Now, I know we cannot keep pace with them, but there's no getting around the fact that one of the key ingredients of intimacy is FaceTime. 
And I don't mean FaceTime on your phone. I mean like actual FaceTime. How ridiculous that we call virtual connection FaceTime. That's nonsense. Good old-fashioned retro old-school analog FaceTime is one face in front of another face. That's real FaceTime. I resent Apple for what they called it. I just came back from Anaheim, California, suffering for the Lord in the 70-degree temperatures. I apologize for that, but I attended a conference, and what I learned there, some of the words spoken over me by old friends, prophetic words, some of the fellowship I enjoyed with some of these pastors, I've returned really full in my heart, really renewed, energized, and I want to share with you, so th- these are the guys I hung out with the whole time. Uh, it was an intersection of faith and work conference where pastors were in the minority. There were a lot of people from other industries, and they've sat us at table with people in our industry, if you will. So these are the dudes who sat at my pastor's table. And there's Joe's brother, Joel, came all the way from Korea without telling Joe. <laughs> and I ran into him there. And there's Pastor Jay Kim from Wheeling at Grace Church. Some of you know him. So I knew these two guys before, but the other two guys I had never met in my life. And by the time we were leaving the conference, we were like hugging like old friends saying, and one of the guys was like, did I just really meet you two days ago? And he was saying, keep in touch. And he looked kind of emotional. I'm like, wow, this is so weird. But you've all felt that at summer camp or at a retreat. That intensity of spending 24-7 together, even that short time of concentrated face time, starts to build a link between people. Now, I'm not saying it's foolproof, it's going to be guaranteed, but I'm saying that time actually spent together is indispensable for building a sense of community. There's no way around it. We can't dial it in or check in periodically. If we don't see each other, we stop being real to each other. I I can testify to this because there are people in our church that I used to see all the time. Our lives were intersected. We would spend a great deal of time seeing each other, blessing each other, studying scripture, praying for each other, sharing food together. And then for months at a time, for years sometimes, we just, our lives kind of drift in separate directions and there's no FaceTime and I start to feel this separation happen in my heart. Not because I'm upset with them, not because I resent it, but because if we don't see each other, we are memories to one another. We are vaporware, a thought, an idea, a recollection, but not a person. And I don't know how to get around that. And so I struggle. I, I, I tell the person, let's get together because if I don't see you, I think you're going to disappear from my life. And I care about you. But if we don't see each other, can we really be in community together? I don't have to sell that too hard because you know how it feels when you go to CG. That's what we call community groups, small groups at our church. When you go to CG and like three people showed up, your first thought isn't, oh, I'm so happy with the three of you. I missed you. Where is everyone? The heck? Messed up, man. And you feel the weight of their not being there. Not because you resent them, because you care about them. And when they don't show up, what you feel is, this wasn't important. And what you really feel is, I wasn't important. And I want to see your face. I want to feel like we're actually together in this thing. And when I don't see you, there's no way around it. It starts to put another foot or two distance between us. Think about how different it feels when you walk into a CG and it's a full house. You can't even find parking for about a block down the street. Everybody's there. It's noisy. It's boisterous. And you're like, wow, this feels different today. Everyone showed up. You want to be here together. And right away, your attitude, your posture, everything feels different from the first minute you walk into the house, doesn't it? We all know what I'm saying, right? That there's something about our being together that has a profound effect on other people. And when we exempt ourselves, when we absent ourselves, it has a profound effect in the other direction on the people around. That decision when you're really tired, you had a bum week at work, the last thing you feel like is small talk or seeing other people, you just really want to chill and watch TV or eat something or drink something, and you just, I can't be there right now. And I get it. Everybody's felt that. And when you're 
in that last 30 minutes before community group and you, you make the decision and you send out that note, sorry guys, won't make it tonight. I want you to know that's not just a private decision, but it in fact has a profound effect on the other people to whom you're connected with. Because we deeply affect each other with our presence. There's no way around that. Now, I said it several times. We can't and we shouldn't meet every day at church and in our homes. Okay? I w- in a perfect world, I would love that. I, I'm in church as my job, so uh, I would love if you joined us here. But I, I realize how unrealistic that is. But I, I do believe this. We can do better than we are. I really do believe that. Some of the time that we're not with our community, that we're by ourselves, think about how much of your downtime is me time. It's spent in activities you do all by yourself. It's not just downtime, it's down by myself time. And we need some of that. Every human being does. Introverts need it more than others. But I think a disproportionate amount of our time spent away from each other is spent alone. I think maybe too much of our time spent apart from each other is spent all by ourselves and not in the kind of solitude that builds us up, the kind of solitude that just keeps isolating us. It's fun to stare at my phone and watch eight seasons of a show in one sitting. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm a pastor, but I'm I'm not going to pretend, oh, that's sinful. It's so fun. It is. I'm afraid if I don't have a structure for my sabbatical, that's how it's going to go. I'm going to just watch everything. It is so fun. But if I do it, every moment I'm doing it, I'm getting more and more isolated and alone. I think we need to do better at doing activities that incorporate other people. We do need our downtime, our alone time, but I think we're getting more than we actually need in our culture. Excuse me. Even when we say we're with family, sorry, you know, I really need to be with my family. Can we be honest? Sometimes we're just all together, alone, separately in the same building. Call that family time. He's in his room, I'm in my room, but I needed to be with my family. You just needed to be in your building. That's all it was. If we're going to say we're not going to be with the rest of our community because of family, let's be with our family, actually present, engaged, together, loving one another. Jeannie is so good at pushing this agenda. I'm not. I, I wish I were. I wish I were good at it. But if, I don't know if we'd ever sit at a table and play board games if it weren't for Jeannie. Every day, let's play games together. Let's sit. And so last night we did. We played some board games together. And I really liked it. We really had fun. It made me feel like our family lives together. And I'm so grateful she keeps pushing that when I don't. I think we can do a better job, even with the people in our community groups, of just doing life together. How many of you guys are going to watch the football games today? Anyone? Nerds? <laughs> Total nerds. I feel so far from you right now. You can, <laughs> This, come on, this is playoffs. So you're going to watch the football games. Call someone up. Just go, hey, you look lonely, man. Come over. <laughs> or you can say, I'm lonely. Come over. If I'm going to do it, why do I have to do it by myself? Just say, like, I know we didn't have plans. I know we didn't consult each other's calendars six months out. But once in a while, you just go, look. We're in each other's lives. Just come over. Don't bring anything. I'm not going to feed you anything fancy. Yesterday's pizza in the microwave, but we're going to watch a game together and we're going to hang out. Let's do it. And when we're together, we'll do it together as though Jesus were hanging out with us. I'm not just going to watch a football game. I'm going to see you as a brother or sister. And I'm going to wonder how you're doing with him. I'm going to ask you to wonder about that for me. Now, lest you think that all of this sounds very incestuous and ingrown, us together all the time, just our church family, listen to what else it says here, okay? Every day they continued to meet together. This way of life was very visible in public. I mean, they hung out in the corner of the public temple courtyard. 
They weren't hiding and shuffling around in the dark. And people saw how different they looked. It was commonplace to see circles of Jews in the temple courtyard arguing with you. Have you ever heard Jewish, Jewish people from Israel having a loving conversation? It sounds like an argument. It's just certain cultures that the way they talk feels like a debate, right? And I've traveled enough of the world to know I I keep trying to break up fights in some countries. I'm like, oh, you're just loving each other. Sorry. It just sounds really aggressive the way you talk. So it was very commonplace, and some cultures love a good debate. That's how people connect. Oh, yeah? Well, what about this? And they go back and forth, and that's what people saw is in the courtyard, in little pockets, people were arguing all day about God. But they watched this other group, this weird group, the followers of Jesus, and they looked like they were not just arguing. They looked like they were trying to build each other up. Like they actually cared about each other. They didn't just want to win an argument or make a point. They were really trying to apprehend the truth and help others to do the same. Something about the way they lived together stuck out for people. And there's every suggestion in this verse when it says that they had the favor of all the people. That's not possible unless all the people around could see that and marvel. And then it says even more, God was adding to their number every day, which strongly suggests that this life together that they enjoyed was not just us and no more, but it was inclusive and open. There was a spirit of invitation. On the way home from the temple, they would be walking to John's house, and they're going to have leftover tacos, and someone says, hey, where are, who are all of you guys? What are you doing? They're like, hey, come over for tacos. Get to know us. We'll tell you who we are and what we're about. And you get this idea that that's the way they did life. They did life together, but all were welcome. And every single day, people who watched this distinctive way of living were drawn to it. I want that. I need more of that. And they began to hang out with these people. And they were on a journey. And day by day, God was bringing more into this family because the hearts were inclusive and open. Don't you want to be a part of a church that feels like that? We can be. There's no reason we can't be that way. We just have to decide in our hearts. It matters enough that we won't just agree with it. We will change our day-to-day lifestyle because of it. I'll close with this. In the last few years, some science fiction movies have been coming out that I really have enjoyed. Movies like Gravity, Interstellar, The Martian, and... You might argue with me, but my favorite was The Passengers, okay? Passengers. And these movies use the setting of outer space, a perfect setting to explore the themes of aloneness and isolation. Because when you're on Earth and you're alone, just go across the street, get out of your house, be with people. When you're in outer space, I guess I'm alone. There's a lot of options you can have when you're out there by yourself. And so these movies explore how aloneness and isolation affects the human heart. That movie, Passengers, was especially poignant for me because it illustrated that you could have everything you need for a really comfortable life. But if that comfortable life means living it alone and dying alone, it makes the prospect of living very bleak and unattractive. In fact, even if you have everything you need, if you don't have other people, the heart begins to thrash and panic. There's no telling what you do to not be alone. We built this series on the image of a rocket. And you all remember the famous line in Apollo 13. Not in the movie, but in real life. The astronauts on that mission famously said, Houston... We have a problem. The most important word in that famous statement is we. You see, until the Gemini missions, America only sent one man at a time into outer space. If Alan Shepard had a problem, (laughs) he had a problem all by himself. And just imagine what that feels like to be alone in in a malfunctioning spacecraft. And you can hear the voices of everyone in mission control, but you are the only one stuck out there by yourself. Imagine what that feels like to be alone in that. 
problem was life-threatening on Apollo 13, but the fact that they were able to say, Houston, we have a problem, made all the difference. Because even if the only future you have ahead of you is you're going to die, at least you won't die alone. Someone will sit with you and you will die together. And it's profound what a difference that makes. We can't fix everything and we can't save everyone. But sometimes the greatest act of love we can give to our community is to sit with them in their suffering and let's at least die together. The important word in that we have a problem is we. It makes all the difference. And some people right now in our very own church family feel like they're stranded in a broken spacecraft orbiting the earth from a great distance and they see everyone else and they feel cut off from it, utterly alone. We can make a huge difference in their life. We can. I have no illusions that all of us are going to suddenly go out and be different radically today, but here's my hope. All of us will begin to feel the Holy Spirit wrestling with us, starting with conviction, but ultimately leading to action. That we will be the loving hand of God for someone else. And one day they will be that for us. Can I encourage you to start right now? Don't wait to go home. Start the minute our worship service breaks up and you start looking for your friends. Instead, look for the person who looks or feels or you know to be alone. And love them as a brother or sister would. Just be there with them. Reach out. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.